0: everybody, welcome to another episode of America's favorite sweaty, overly caffeinated, horrifying shit show of a history podcast. Wizard the it's cold in here. Bruiser. <laughs> it's actually
2: not cold in here. It is too hot and we're sweating profusely. My slim. body is a nightmare
0: right now. <laughs> and my
2: body's a wonderland. I am the wizard Holden McNeely, huge John Mayer fan. And I am your Ben Folds 5 <laughs> cover
0: band bruiser, Jake Young. <laughs> oh
2: my God. Together we make the most awful music (laughs) one could ever fucking fathom. What? Um, Are you kidding me? The White Guys With Feelings Tour is doing great. (laughs) And Megan, will you play us this intro to kick off what this topic is for today?
0: Ooh. So spooky.
2: It's actually supposed to give you a sense of wonder.
0: But but there's some some kind of industrial,
2: dirty future town. Hmm. Oh, It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) It's so
1: good.
0: Oh, but it's foreboding too. Like there's some kind of impending doom.
2: Final Fantasy Seven. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Oh so good. I mean it's 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 not like fully orchestrated, it's still kind of just like synthy and <laughs> Yeah, totally. <laughs>
2: Well, yeah, they get to the full orchestrations in 8. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, But, uh, oh, my God, Final Fantasy VII. Finally, we made it to this one. Uh, If you know much about me on my Twitch channel, things like that, um, you would probably know that uh, Final Fantasy VII is my favorite video game from my childhood. So I'm glad we're finally um, kicking around on some Final Fantasy titles. I'm sure we're going to be doing other titles in the future, but this was a good place to start, I think. And I I get it. Okay, fine. Okay, fine. I get it. Eight's the best game. Nine's the best game. Six is definitely the best game. But look, <laughs> yeah, you're uh, uh, 12? 10-2, 10-2 is your
0: favorite <laughs> <laughs> Lightning returns has its place in the Final Fantasy Canon as the queen of the entire genre.
2: <laughs> so so um yeah, I mean where where to begin? Well, I'll tell you what where we're gonna begin. I mean I'm gonna go ahead and say this is gonna be a two-parter, and today we're going to be focusing on all of the backstory, on all of the, the development, on on the whole how it how it was made. I think um part two we're going to focus more on the game itself, uh, the story, the um, all the all the crazy all, all the craziness that is Final Fantasy Seven. My personal experiences with the game. Um, I mean, because I have many at this point. You know, I've been I've been other people's guru on the game. I've been uh, I've I've played it myself. Several times through, I've uh, beaten Ruby Weapon, okay? I earned my FF7 chops, all right, is what I'm here to say. And if you don't understand any of what I'm saying right now, um, hopefully you will by the end of this series, this retrospective, if you will, on Final Fantasy VII.
0: Uh, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, but I never actually played the game, I'm... I mean, in time for when we record part two, I will have at least dove in as hard as I can, but it's, uh I was an N64 kid and Final Fantasy VII represented that twist of the knife that like, you know, it's it's kind of like a, uh, just the most old school video game beef. So like, I never got around to it. It always represented like, you know, it was Sonic to Mario. It was uh the Red Sox to the Yankees. Final Fantasy VII represented everything that was like, I'm, I'm going to say, like, uh, you know, this is how I justified it, uh, uh, ostentatious and, and over and overproduced about PlayStation games, whereas, it's, you know, for me, it was about getting those stars, man. It was about, <laughs> it was about get, you know, it was about kind of just patiently keeping your head down until Ocarina of Time came out. You know,
2: it's completely fine that you've never played this game, but if you could, just, can you just excuse me for a second? Uh-huh.
0: Hey, hey, Megan, where's he going?
2: What in the hell? Uh- what in the hell?
0: Okay, I'm fine. You, you know that that you just went behind a curtain that wasn't soundproof. <laughs> You have something to say to me, buddy? I was told this was a soundproof <laughs> curtain and that no sound traveled past this curtain. It's big and red, like like in the Wizard of Oz. No, I mean, I hey hey, what 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 is it about Final Fantasy Seven that makes it so <laughs> great?
2: So you're right, okay. And and I think that uh, we we will get into actually the curtain is green. Thank you, Megan, for pulling up Wizard of Oz so that I could know <laughs> that the curtain is green instead of red. Anyways, look, I feel like I'm being attacked right now. First of all, second of all, what's uh uh. This really was, um, essentially, you know, and, and there's a quote in here somewhere in all my many, many notes that I have taken on this game, that, um, this really was the game that sold the PlayStation. This is the game that put the PlayStation on the map, and originally it was supposed to be on the Nintendo. I mean, you had, uh, Final Fantasy six, uh, aka Final Fantasy three. you had, uh, the original Final uh, on SNES, you had the original Final Fantasy on Nintendo, um, they were developing for the N64, but, um... A combination of a couple of things pushed them over to uh, the Sony PlayStation. One of those things was just CDs, it was cheaper to make, um, and you could fit way more on a, a CD ROM at the time than on a cartridge. What, on to- I mean,
0: when you say way more, like it's by an exponential factor. Like the biggest, like the most extravagant N64 games are like a couple dozen megabytes whereas a CD could hold hundreds of megabytes for a fraction of the cost, which is, uh, you know, Final Fantasy VII was how many discs? Like three, I think?
2: Yeah. So it was like three. Was three, di- which was insane at yeah. the time. I remember just being like, what? It's three discs? That's crazy. And the fact that you would put them in to continue the game like that was also fascinating too it wasn't like a preload deal like it wasn't install discs it was like no you're done with disc one and like that moment when you hit the done with disc one moment well first of all fucking spoiler alert the big crazy murder death happens at the end of disc one Mm. and then it's just like throw in disc two dog and you're like what whoa and it's like you you for a second you, you spent all this time trying to get to disc two mm-hmm. um and then for they make you completely forget about anything regarding finishing the game because they just took away the love of your life <laughs> in game um which of course we'll oh get to oh my god
0: Tifa dies in this game
2: yes Tifa gets straight murder. No, no no of course I'm talking about the death of Aerith which is going to be really hard for me to say because I'm you know used to the in- shitty English translation of the game so I've always referred to her as Ares um but 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 of course, she is Aerith, which is a combination of the words air and earth because of the whole ecology backstory. We're going to get more into that, I think, in episode two, but still... um uh, originally, though, they were planning on putting it on uh, the uh, SNES. They they were working on a 2D game for the SNES. And back then, there were even some early drafts. It was set in New York, and there was, like, a detective. And um, there was, it was all, it was, like, a complete, like, there were barely any remnants that were actually carried into what would later become Final Fantasy VII. I mean,
0: you lived in New York long enough to know that it's basically Midgar. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like a rich layer on top, like uh, corporations run everything. There's giant reactors that steal the life energy of the planet. I'm
2: glad you're t- bringing this up now. Black is-
0: guys with Gatling guns attached to their <laughs> wrists, just enlisting you for quick jobs. It,
2: it is sort of
0: good to set Lions the stage. Lions with Native American headdresses, <laughs> just kind of uh, making jokes about maybe raping your friend. Red 13,
2: he's a science experiment. Le- le- the- we should set the stage a little bit, of course. It's set in a sort of dark future world. World. Um, this is the first Final Fantasy where they're getting away from like sort of traditional fantasy elements, where they're trying to kind of make it a little bit more. It's almost like steampunk.
0: It's sort of well, Final Fantasy six slash three. We're just gonna call it six. The- yeah, okay. SNA, six. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the the Tetra one, the Petra, arguably the best.
2: RPG ever made maybe For some people for others it's this For others it's Chrono Trigger by the way All of those games were made in a row At the same time in fact uh, To bring up Chrono Trigger when they were working on the SNES 2D Final Fantasy 7 They had to actually stop And move their team over to Chrono Trigger Because apparently the development for that was in dire Straits and that's why really There was no FF7 on Super Nintendo just because the game got Pushed off to, for a certain amount of uh, Time bef- to, until they were like shit we have to start developing for new uh uh consoles at this point but anyways yeah all through all three of those games are like the greatest, arguably the greatest uh RPG jrpgs at least of of all time and they were all made within like a fucking and within the exact same like sort of ring of time by square so
0: square was basically the king of the japanese gaming world uh in conjunction with enix who I was, was, was making say. the uh the uh, Dragon, Dragon Quest series Technically I think Dragon Quest came first yes. And Final Fantasy uh, Came second mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Square at the time Was a like kind of It was kind of a failing software Company uh, run by Like uh, you know it was run by what's the guys I think it's another Miyamoto but Masafumi
2: not- Miyamoto founded in September 1986 in his father's office space <laughs> it was described as kind of a family business um, and of course by the way if, if it sounds weird we're talking about Square and Enix separately of course there's a Square Enix merger in 2003 that, that yeah. would later become Square Enix but at the, back in the day yeah it was um, it was the computer game software division of Denyusha, which is a power line construction <laughs> company which was owned by Miyamoto's father, um, and I'm pretty sure they're all the same Miyamoto. Anytime I say Miyamoto, I'm talking about one guy. Uh, ga- the games usually is that racist? I can't tell. Oh, no, no, I'm always it's all it's all the same guy.
0: Games uh, they tried to. So they, when was he? Uh, of course, wandering the woods outside of Kyoto, and he used
2: to wander the woods outside, and he was just like, I wonder if fantasies could ever be final, just like these woods are. No, but of course, if you don't know the story, I'm sure a lot of people do at this point. It's been told over and over and over again. But um, they were they were struggling. He he was their their first game um, was Death Trap, and will the Death Trap do? Um, they started uh, de- developing for the Nintendo Famicom system, but they had a, a series of unsuccessful games. Um, but then they decided to le- release one final game, which was based on the success of the Dragon Quest series. And, and- uh,
0: this was headed by a guy named Hironobu Sakaguchi. Yes, he was the guy that pushed for this to be their. Final Fantasy Yeah yeah So they called it Final Fantasy Because
2: it was literally Going to be their last game And they were gonna in in Sakaguchi Or the Gooch As they like to call it I was gonna
0: call him The Gooch (laughs) I know right Why why don't we both Want to call him The
2: Gooch so bad Uh, That's hilarious Uh, Uh, Of course
0: Around Square offices They actually refer to him As the, the king, king. <laughs> the king, um, and apparently he
2: said that that's because he used to uh, he used to drink so much champagne that they actually it started as they would call him the king of champagne. <laughs> he was like, I drink a lot less now, is what he said. Well, uh, Sakaguchi, interesting guy. Of course, And he would later become the, be the producer for Final Fantasy 7 He studied electrical engineering at a uh, university. He dropped out mid semester with uh, Hiro Michi Tanaka to work at Square, and uh, yeah, he always had had uh, Final Fantasy not sold well he would have quit the industry um and therefore that's why he called it Final Fantasy. Now of course the game ends up being a whopping success. It sells 400,000 copies, keeps the business afloat. And then you know Final Fantasy 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 we're going to jump into the future. All of these
0: games are smash hits in Japan. Yeah, like, huge in Japan,
2: not but not huge anywhere else necessarily.
0: No. Um the JRPG with its like kind it has this very anime centric Yes. Uh, storytelling you know it's a an individual jrpg is almost like a season of an anime just kind of condensed into a single cartridge where like instead of telling the story through like sound and visuals it's tiny sprites flapping their arms up and down with giant text boxes yeah. giving all the exposition
2: which now i love but i mean even when final fantasy 7 came out and my friend showed it to me it was like dude this is the new shit and i was just kind of like wait what What's this menu ass Fighting ass (laughs) shit You know And he was just like Let's try weed And I'm like I don't know You know It was all around The same time
0: uh, (laughs) This is the exact moment That like Final Fantasy 7 Like messed me up Was um like, you know, it's like I, you know, I was at over at my friend's house. It was during like the initial like uh, Barrett Shinra uh, terror, basically a terrorist mission. Yeah,
2: yeah. Avalanche is as is, uh, is an organization going up against Shinra, which is the big mean corporation. Shinra is sucking
0: up all the life source of the earth. You don't their- even know that they're sucking up like the life. Right. Like when you start, it's just a yeah like fuck Exxon parable yeah yeah exactly <laughs> exactly it's also um, super uh, uh, we, we're getting ahead but, but the idea was you know he was showing me these cool graphics and this cool gameplay and then the actual fighting was like 20 damage yeah, <laughs> 24 damage oh but you got your limit break do the limit break yeah. and it's like yeah 40 damage. <laughs> I'm just like
2: what is this is not a game. Uh, but then you get your first summon and you're like, "Oh fuck, it's different." Well, actually the first summon Shiva, please. Come on, people. All right, but um let's hop back to um they Square pre Final Fantasy VII Square. They leave they, they move the team off of the 2D uh, sequel to Final Fantasy 6 um for the SNES because they need uh to get help over at the Chrono Trigger team. They end up making um Chrono Trigger of course is one of one of the fucking greatest. Um, so it's amazing that they they're like okay, they shuffle over there, make one of the best JRPGs ever made, and then shuffle back over to Final Fantasy VII. They resume development. Chrono Trigger like a
0: dream team of the of you know uh, Akira Toriyama of Dragon Ball fame and yes. the kind of imaginatively behind the Dragon Quest series. Yes, working with the story department of the Final Fantasy series. So it was this in Japan it was an even bigger deal than it was in America.
2: Absolutely and when they get back to this game they've got all right. this is what you gotta understand like I said Square started off it was like a family business well it kind of retained that family business aesthetic all throughout this time but now they've just got oodles and oodles and oodles of fucking cash to work with so it's They got yen coming out of their dicks. It's described as the perfect storm. Square still acted as a small company but had the resources of a big one. Uh, Programmer Hiroshi Kawai uh, has a great quote here. I don't think I've felt that kind of excitement ever since. It wasn't just the fact that Square had the resources to get all the people and the hardware and the technology together, but even before seeing anything run, it was as if we knew we were going to be making history. Somebody else described Sakaguchi um, Gucci Man as as his is his rap name. Uh, Snoochie, Gucci, S- Snoochie Gucci Little Gucci, Snoochie Gucci Little Gucci Man, which of course was his big first <laughs> hip-hop single that was did really well only in Florida. He, um, <laughs> he It was said... Someone Someone referred to him, yes, yeah, someone referred to him as um, able to almost like see into the future and see what was going to be huge. And Sakaguchi is the producer kind of leading the charge. Um, but he had this uh, he, amazing team underneath him. And the cool thing about it was he just he he would flip-flop at he would say it himself, and oh, by the way, did we mention the Polygon article? I don't think we did. Everybody spoiler needs to, alert. Yeah, we are using a lot of from the resource of this uh, Polygon article, which is an oral history of Final Fantasy VII. And if you really want to learn more about, uh, or a really deep di- dive even deeper, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Even if you have no interest in Final Fantasy VII, just know that all Japanese game companies mm-hmm. keep a very, very tight lip about their dev process. And th- and this uh, person, um, who is it, Matt, Matt, Matt Leone, Matt Leone. This guy, this guy got in and really got the inside take from the people involved, from directly from the source, which is an incredibly unique and wonderful and fascinating thing.
0: I actually listened to an interview with uh, Matt uh, short, that came out shortly after this uh, post came out. This is a long-form article. This is basically a... Non-fiction novella They
2: keep a bookmark There's like a bookmark thing In the actual web page So that you can bookmark As you read Because they don't expect you To read it in one sitting
0: But this is Two years of interviews Gathered at like Every single Japanese uh, Games event That he could get to And get access to these people Including people that are harder Like Tetsuya Nomura is incredibly which, hard to get a hold of. Which uh, we'll
2: get to. He was uh, the character designer that ended up having massive influence on the story elements. Uh
0: And, you know, all these business people, like, years after they finally... You, you know, after all this is water under the bridge, but these were a lot of major companies beefing with each other. And, you know, it was it was kind of hard to get this story until now when the smoke finally cleared. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, this is a lot of people shit on polygon especially cuz you know like a lot of their posts are just like why super mario is the is is anti trans <laughs> like you know it's <laughs> it's a lot of clickbait it's a lot of uh you know very touchy feely articles but the fact is is that these sites actually have the resources and care Enough to actually write this stuff like you're not Going to find an entire 7,000 word breakdown on a Twitter thread
2: it's a wonderful one of a Kind situation so I just cannot recommend Going from this episode Going off and reading this thing just Just for the absolute uniqueness of It I don't know if we'll ever get this Kind of coverage about a Japanese Dev co- company on us on a Specific game like I just I don't think it'll Necessarily ever exist again um, They keep their they keep their shit very 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 close to the chest. Uh, So, so anyways, they start developing for the N64, but um, they don't even
0: like do that yet. Yeah. Like, uh, so it's around 1994 is when they just started this process, spitballing. That's when like the- Talking about the tech demo? In 1995, they showcased a uh, interactive CG game. Yes. Because they wanted to see, because of the uh, approaching next generation of consoles, They wanted to know, like, if they actually could do a 3D kind of game. And it's not even
2: a game. It's just, like, one fight using the characters from Final Fantasy VI. It's just this sort of kind of show-off of, like... Because what you have to realize is the shift from 2D to 3D is happening with um, this game. And... People don't even know what that looks like. Like, they're defining what that looks like, what 3D Final Fantasy looks like. So, so the kind of, like, the, the the fights that we all know and have seen a, a billion times throughout the series from Final Fantasy VII on, that, that we've come to just kind of, like, take, you know, uh, to be quite frank, audience, take for granted, okay? So I want everybody to take a moment and thank the game lords. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
0: I'm just now, I just imagined a dark, caustonic god. <laughs> he's just covered in <laughs> Cheeto dust. I want to like, be the game lord. Gaze upon my Cheeto dusted visage <laughs> I did, and know madness. I, for just, I am the game lord. It's just the game genie guy, the 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 game genie, all pink the red pink guy. Pixels. Yeah. Doing the research for the making of article and the fact that three uh, D graphics was such a revolutionary leap really brought me back to a specific time and place. Like mm-hmm. we were kids, mm-hmm. and the I don't even know what the leap can be, like, described as, because 2D pixel art to 3D, even basic uh, polygon graphics, was mind-bending. It was a gaze into another reality. Like, from the history of painting and illustration and animation and everything that came before it, nothing looked the way that CG looked. It was completely original. Uh, You know, Toy Story had come out uh, in 1994, and, you know, Pixar was basically... Starting from the 80s, to try and even figure out how to make animation with computers. So, this was so bleeding edge, and the visuals that were created were so new and revolutionary. That by its very nature of being in 3D, it was intoxicating at the And,
2: time. and in particular, this Final Fantasy tech demo um, really opened eyes because for the most part, the gold rush was to try to get to the most realistic looking graphics as possible. But the Final Fantasy team, Square, really wanted to stay true to their anime influences and all those like sprites that they had. Um, for, for their characters in previous games They were all based on st- sort of anime taste So they were bringing anime to a 3D um, video game aesthetic And people were like A lot of people were like What the fuck is this But other people were like Whoa you guys have something that's really interesting This is really crazy looking
0: I mean the 3D industry was so new And so novel That no one had even attempted to do These kind of anime style visuals in 3D before So that was already you know uh, God's new country. <laughs> so, and the name of the software was
2: Soft Image 3D, um, and that was kind of what they used in the very early tests. The now,
0: Soft Image 3D uh, technology eventually morphed and grew into uh, what we now know as Maya, which is a mm-hmm. modern animation uh, program that's still being used today.
2: Mm-hmm. And uh, so the they they uh, get to work on um, based on this tech demo. They were like, "Holy shit! I think we need to make a whole game like this. Make a 3D." They showed it off at
0: SIGGRAPH, which is still to this day kind of a cutting edge uh, collective. Kind of, I'm trying to think of a similar think tanky, multi industry collaborative uh, institute. Four Chan. Maybe more like TED talks. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm Just kidding. everyone. It's uh, it's a, it's a important uh, distinction to be shown and at Siggraph. Yeah. Because it means you've made some kind of revolution in technology in 3D imaging. Uh, to this day, you can. I, I've been saying. I'm going to be saying a lot of to this day. Yeah. Uh, you can actually look up uh, the prize winners and the people that have successfully submitted to Siggraph and see some really mind blowing. Uh, technology that you could did not think was possible with computers
2: popped up a memory from the article. I believe it was Sakaguchi who was talking about this, but um, how somebody came drop up, drop that Gucci knowledge, drop that <laughs> Gucci Gucci. Some uh, someone came up to him and was like, "Can I like take a, this demo and show it to my people?" And he was like, "Sure." And he was like, "And that guy was the guy who started Google Maps." <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of the mo- like brilliant minds are meeting at this place and sort of checking out what everybody else is working on and getting ideas and and um, getting influenced and and sort of taking. Some stuff home with them
0: oh yeah well it's uh, one of the guys from Silicon Graphics which uh, the name if you're a 90s child might come up a lot because they were involved Mm. in the creation of the N64 Mm. and if you worked in 3d animation like the the primo shit to work on you know you were serious business if you got to work on a Silicon Graphics workstation Mm -hmm. and uh, this was they were basically the only company that were making computers custom-built computers for use in computer graphics and animation and game development uh which is funny because like they go into a lot in the article in the in the retrospective about like how cool these computers were and how much money they were dropping on it and uh these these high-end workstations that they had been like they had been buying uh were so insane like all right They were talking about, like, $100,000 for a single computer. Yeah. And uh, the computers they were using, I looked up the stats, and, like, they had a 250 megahertz MIPS processor (laughs) and up to 512 megabytes of RAM. (laughs) Megabytes of RAM. (laughs) Uh, and the graphics were like had over a hundred and twenty eight megaflops. So you're saying on,
2: on my gaming PC alone, I could make a Final Fantasy VII. Is or, that what you're telling me right now? Uh,
0: you could make a million Final <laughs> Fantasy Sevens.
2: But they ordered like uh, how many? Like eighty of those machines, and and uh, or
0: something like that. Like they had a ludicrous budget. They had a budget. I think they ordered the uh, along with pro- with uh, servers to actually do some hardcore rendering of the cutscenes. Uh, they ordered a lot of. Uh, SGI Indigo 2s, I think? No, hmm. wait, not maybe, not the Indigos. It was the Octane 2s. They ordered okay. Octane 2s, which were fully spec'd, close to $100,000. Uh, right now, you could get for $22,000, like, an insane, like, 24-core Xenon processor, like, five NVIDIA Quadro graphics cards, Jesus. like 256 gigabytes of RAM, yeah. like a uh, teraflops of processing power, which skipping giga, you're skipping yeah, yeah. giga. You, you know, it is like insane how much tech they bought and how pit, like our phones could outperform these things right now. <laughs> That's and, crazy. <laughs> but all that tech, all that processing power at the time meant that they could pump out a lot of 3d visuals Mm-hmm. Which their competitors couldn't. Yes. So that's why uh, p- previous PlayStation games, you know, there was stuff like Jumping Flash. You know, it was mm-hmm. a lot of like flat polygons yeah. and like janky cutscenes because they just, individual game companies weren't big enough and didn't have just the raw. Processing power to create the Visuals that Final Fantasy 7 would Eventually be able to get but Final
2: Fantasy 7 Was able to work with a combined Budget of 80 million I believe it was Something more like 40 million Was spent on the actual development and Another like 40 million was spent On marketing something like that I forget the exact Breakdown it might have been 60-20 um, But either way uh, They had a ludicrous budget to work out A ton of incredible tech and therefore They were able to go out and just Happily fish whatever tech Talent They wanted from the pond and people would just fucking uh, come join them because they were like, well, we'd rather go to square where they have all the cool computers to play with. The, oh, you know, the
0: other crazy thing is, again, once they decided to go 3D with all this, there weren't enough. Like they literally had to find basically every fully trained CGI artist in the world that spoke Japanese to work on it to the point where they actually went down to like Skywalker Ranch. Yep where I where Industrial Light and Magic, and uh, I don't know quite how the timeline works, but for a while, uh, George Lucas owned a part of uh, Pixar. So, like, they had to go to literally the source of where people could act, who actually knew how to make 3D animated movies just to, like, get enough people to make this thing. Basically, what I'm trying to stress is that nobody made anything like this before except for like pixar and toy story and like a few other like rinky dink not rinky dink but child family family entertainment the idea that they were bringing in all these people to use all this technology to draw to to create imagery of like swords and guns and slums and monsters and luxurious silver-haired androgynous murder boys were it's We'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get to the beautiful, beautiful silver-haired murder boy and whether or not his naked alien mom made him go crazy. <laughs> but uh, the, it, it, was an, it was a genuine artistic and technical achievement yeah. to even make the imagery that they made with the technology they had in a way that nobody had ever done before.
2: I mean, Soft Image 3D was used on Jurassic Park, Power Animator software, which is the other stuff they were working with. that oh, was used shit. in That was used for Terminator 2 Judgment Day. I mean, this is like— Power
0: Animator is what turned into my—I'm sorry. Ah. Don't send me any angry emails.
2: Luckily, we don't have a correction segment. <laughs> uh, but anyways, they, they, it was, they, they were working, yeah, with the highest, highest in stuff. Um, oh, okay. It looks like they purchased it off for a total of twenty-one million dollars. Is just for the tech alone. That's part. That is like a uh, a fourth of their total budget was spent on just tech.
0: Well, that tech eventually like led to uh, you know that's the same computers that they ended up making like Parasite Eve and all these right. other. Uh, 90s era 3D PlayStation games,
2: and I'm glad you brought up Parasite Eve. Of course, this New York guys, the New York setting, and all that stuff. I think they would that they were working with for the original, original, original draft of the SNES 2D FF7. They ended up pushing that into Parasite Eve and some other games. But either way, so they're developing for the N64, and they're having problems. There's just big frame rate issues. They just can't seem to kind of fit these big, giant um, 3D rendered sequences onto a cartridge. And um, while that's going on, you know, the article, uh, the Polygon article even states that, like, there's a lot of talk about how the N64 couldn't handle shit and that the, they just could make it stuff cheaper and fit everything on discs better. But also, there seems to be some political stuff going on between Nintendo and Sony that it just seemed like Sony was saying all the right things to them and Nintendo and and their relationship was straining. And so there was kind of a... Uh, there was kind of a weird like like uh, and of course these are, Japanese devs, they're they're gonna be really tight about that stuff, especially. But there does seem to be some whisperings about how Nintendo just kind of fucked up the deal, and Sony kind of just swooped in and was like, hey, 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 and just sort of got them, just just perfect timing got them and and swooped them up and and was like, here's the here's a great deal.
0: Take if it. you scroll, if you open up your phone right now, open up our Wizard in the Bruiser feed and scroll, just mash that thumb all the way down to the bottom to our Sonic the Hedgehog episode. we actually kind of get into how Nintendo's business practices in the Japanese game development scene was super tight-fisted and Mm -hmm. super unfair. And they basically, you know, controlled everything from the content to the cartridge production. And the fact was that because the Famicom was the only family computer that made a dent in both the American and Japanese uh, household industries... Uh, they could set the terms, and if you wanted your game to sell, you had to work through them. But Sony and uh, Sega, for a lesser part, RIP Saturn. You know, you you tried. (laughs) You tried Sega Saturn. um, Offered much better royalty deals. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, Sony was actively courting uh, Square and promising lots of marketing budget and financial support. But, 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 even though the N sixty four like on paper could crunch more polygons, uh, the fact was is that working with a limited amount of memory and working with a minuscule amount of storage on a cartridge, you would never have been able to fit Final Fantasy seven.
2: Yeah, just just point blank, everything was just pushing towards Sony. I love this quote from character designing designer Kawai. I think it was near the end of the year, Sakaguchi-san just gathers everybody in the middle of this gigantic floor where we we had a bunch of devs working in the middle of Meguro, and he just casually announces, you know, we're not developing for Nintendo anymore. So all my work at that point kind of went down the drain. <laughs> and from CEO Tamayuki Takechi, it was pretty un- uh, uncomfortable. There were about four to five years where we couldn't really talk with Nintendo. We didn't have a friendly relationship with them. So it really did put on a crazy strain. Um, but at this point, they say we're going for Sony. They staff up. They get a staff of 150 people, give or take. Um, and just for reference, there was normally about 20 people on a, on a, 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 a dev team at, around that time. They have a Development and marketing budget of of $80 million. They are going 100%. Another quote I really loved uh, about about their development process from programmer Tetsuya Yoshinari there were were a lot of people who were working on the game 24 hours a day, and no one got burned out because we were all motivated and having a good time. And it's this fucking awesome, like mom and pop shop feel to a massively budgeted game that just kind of, again, brought together this kind of perfect little. And then also, just from what everybody says he was just the kind of uh, great leader they needed who would just come in and 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 make tr- make decisions like that and come in and just be like this is what we're doing we're doing this and, and you know he even says himself he's like I could go back and forth on stuff he would be so sure about things one moment and then be like you know what never mind and people kind of had to deal with that um, and, it, and it, it was difficult for people to deal with
0: that but that have you ever worked with a boss
2: like that <laughs> yes I think everybody <laughs> has right who's just like wait wait a second. but for, but this guy but it, but usually that boss is a complete idiot. <laughs> this guy was actually like had his shit together. You know, by the way, I can't believe we have not mentioned um, the uh, the director, Yoshinori Katase. I mean, this guy, he also directed Final Fantasy VI, Chrono Trigger, Final Fantasy VIII, Final Fantasy X. Um, a little backstory on him, he was inspired to get into the film industry after watching Star Wars. He went to college for screenwriting and filmmaking and um, worked at an animation studio after college. But, um, he played Final Fantasy for the first time, and he he decided maybe he should switch to games. He applied to Square in 1990, had no software development knowledge, and and he was hired. Um, he,
0: he, Can me just say it's so cool that like after doing so many episodes on Japanese developers and like animators and stuff like that that they all grew up watching American movies and be like, oh, I want to make cool shit. (laughs) And now that we're getting to like the modern age, it's so many American directors and animators and video game developers are like, oh man, I grew up playing Nintendo games and watching anime. And I was like, man, I want to make cool shit.
2: (laughs) Exactly, right? It just is this wonderful cyclical thing. And I think it's also important to bring
0: up something about really rich countries with horrific imperialist (laughs) pasts inspiring each other across (laughs) generations.
2: It's also really important to bring up at this time is I'm surprised we haven't even mentioned this at one point, but just the idea that everybody really wanted to make something way more cinematic than they'd ever made before. Yeah. They wanted this to feel in a way like a movie, and it was like it was games like Final Fantasy VII and Metal Gear Solid, which I definitely c- c- crossover. I mentioned, mm-hmm. of course, in um in in the episode on holy shit, why can I think of his name Hideo Kojima? Hideo Kojima, thank you. On the Hideo Kojima episode, I'm uh, talked about how you know these were like the first games. Wait, where- I'm
0: sorry, could you? Guys, I can't believe in this episode where we're talking about Hironobu, Sakaguchi, Yoshinori Kitase, <laughs> Tetsuya Nomura, and Yusuke Naora, that you forgot the name of Hideo Kojima.
2: <laughs> I'm, tr- I'm struggling. <laughs> so, um, uh, anyways, it, it, that, that the, these were the first games I was playing as a kid and saying to myself, oh, my God, games are starting to fucking feel and look like movies, which, of course, is ludicrous when you look back on those games. But it was like there were opening credits and mm-hmm. there were like giant cinematic moments. And and um, I don't know, maybe maybe at one point in the game I was crying or something like that and actually emotionally connected to the characters.
0: Well, this is uh, this is oh, OK. We're I'm struggling to like hold on to the thread, but uh,
2: cinematic. We're talking about the director, uh, Yoshinori Katase. Oh. Household name. And uh, his his cinematic background and how games at this time are becoming more cinematic.
0: Uh, I honestly think it's more about uh, Tetsuya Nomura. Yes. For giving Final Fantasy VII the edge that it had. Because uh, previously it was Yoshitaka Amano was the uh, artist that most people associated with the Final Fantasy series. He does all those like logos and covers with like the flowing kind of like... Uh, kind of painterly, pretty artwork, you know what I'm talking Mm -hmm, about? Like, if mm -hmm. you've ever seen a Final Fantasy cover where just, like, a guy wearing billowing robes and having, like, a funny hat is holding, like, two overly ornate swords, like, that level of Final Fantasy. Whereas Final Fantasy VII, they brought in Tetsuya Nomura, who was uh, brought in early on as, like, a bug tester and, like... You know, he just got a job interview at Square one day. He had dreams of being a manga artist that kind of fell through and just ended up working for Square. But he worked his way up to character designer for Final Fantasy VII. And his characters, uh, you know, Cloud, Barrett, Tifa, Red XIII, Vincent, like, Yuffie, all these characters were anime as fuck. Yeah. And that kind of angular, simplified style lent itself really well to these early polygonal graphics. Like, I don't think Cloud's hair would have been as, would have looked like it looked if it wasn't for the fact that they literally could only work with 500 triangles. Yes.
2: And, 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 and Nomura sort of all, but Nomura also came in and was sort of like, hey, maybe we should, like, I don't know, straight up murder the yeah. romantic, <laughs> uh, lead romantic interest, uh, like, yeah. kind of halfway through the game.
0: He, he, what I'm saying is he gave everything a little bit of edge, like yeah. everything from, you know, the Buster Sword, which is, Clearly he read a lot of Berserk at the yes, time. Yeah. Uh and like Barrett with his machine gun arm was just like, yo, what if Mr. T was also Robocop? And like, <laughs> you know, he brought uh, actually now that I think about it, like uh a lot of a lot of the character the side characters have Kind of American influences There's Sid Who's like This kind of like Gruff like Fighter piloty Kind of guy This aviator From yeah. kind of the 40s Chain smoker Yeah uh, Red 13 has like This Native American Lion King Mashup thing mm-hmm. Going on mm-hmm. uh, Barrett is what every Japanese guy thought a cool black guy was at the time.
2: Kate Sith, of course, the edgy-ass giant stuffed plushie with a kitty cat on top of him. Okay, that one was
0: pretty unique.
2: Uh, (laughs) But he even turns out to be a fucking uh, double agent and sabotages the whole group. He's the worst fucker of of all of them. He's
0: got the most edge of all of them, man. Uh, But so they're working with this cutting-edge technology telling a fucking edgy-ass story for the yeah. 90s because it's about, you know, it's, you're not fighting an evil empire. You're fighting the corporation, yeah. man. But also, Sakaguchi's
2: mother died during the development of Final Fantasy VI, so he wanted to choose life as a theme of Final Fantasy VII as a way to cope with that. And uh, also, uh, he, you know, and then it was, Nomura kind of came to him and was like, well, we need, in order to, if our theme's going to be life, then we have to deal with a death. It was also apparently Nomura and Katase who uh, reworked the plot and, and came up with the whole pursuit of Sephiroth as the main plot length. Most of the plot is you sort of just behind Sep- Sephiroth, kind of in his tracks, mm-hmm. like following the trail, trying to just like find this mysterious figure and just learning the whole plot and backstory of everything that's going on and, and all then the twisted abruptly shit. abruptly
0: finding out that the plot and backstory that you thought were following was wrong yeah. and it was there was amnesia and in fact the real plot and backstory is this yeah except that's wrong yeah, the real yeah. oh my god yeah this.
2: it gets it gets a, a little ridiculous with all of that stuff it it all sort of was just this kind of dark fucked sort of mystery yeah. like you I know. mean the the
0: the, enti- the fact is that it wasn't wizards and mana it was uh mako mako i never actually had to say that word out loud uh Mako and Materia and Lifestream Energy and Genova cells and like everything was grounded in its own bizarre science to the point where like if you got into the Professor Hojo Genova experiment shit, like there's some David Cronenberg fucking like craziness going on. Like mm-hmm. a lot of these monsters that they present are these like bizarre twisted forms yeah. that you again in 3D in CG no one was making. Yeah. Like you, you know, this isn't reboot on set on ABC Family. This is you know they're using these these new technologies to tell an adult story for children
2: <laughs> that was the thing and that was definitely the feeling that i had when um i went after a sony playstation as opposed to an n64 and this was kind of the moment i feel like that really started happening the most even though sega in the past you know we do it no nintendo nintendo and they have the edge and whatever but sony really felt like oh this is the adult video game system and i'm going to get this adult video game with final fantasy 7 and it's going to have cursing in it yeah. and people are going to die and it's going you know and it's going to be There's it, a difference it between felt like a the butt.
0: hedgehog edge and yeah. uh, Barrett watches the father of his adopted stepdaughter go crazy and kill himself.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, there's just so many, so many there's intense. There's a
0: difference between Knuckles and uh, a hilarious side plot where our main character dresses in drag and tries to seduce a gang boss into picking him to be his. Concubine for the night
2: So Nomura was the Character creator That sort of had a, That had a lot of Influence on the plot But then there's also Scenario writer Katsushige Nojima Who did do a lot of work On the, on the different um, Plot lines he, he added the whole Cloud split personality Thing that we just Mentioned um, uh, He also He uh, also he had there were a lot of things that he was sort of working with um uh one of the things i love one of the choices i love that katase came up with um was that he wanted to make that death sort of come out of nowhere or be like really unexpected and not super dramatic um we'll get into the music in a little bit but that kind of the music kind of helps as well because the music's just this really pretty ballad not like a it's time for you to cry now like big emotional sort of orchestrated piece but um Uh, there was a lot of back and forth in the story. Um, There was a lot of... uh, They originally were going to have Aerith be uh, Sephiroth's sister. Um, Then he was a previous love interest of Sephiroth. Um, They, uh, at one point... Um, I think it's katase the director, uh, wanted to have everybody die except for the final three people you chose <laughs> to fight Sephiroth right at the end. And um, I mean, it is
0: an important decision before you enter that fight. You do mm-hmm. have to choose three people, so yes. that's probably... Like the leftover remnant of that plot thread. So
2: uh, apparently Nomura was like, don't do that because it would only lessen the effect of Aerith's death. I mean, the thing with Aerith dying, um, I, always, I always feel like I have a lisp when I say Aerith. Because mm-hmm. I want to say Ares because I've been referring to her as Ares like all my life up until very recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, the thing with Aerith dying was like no... In no other game up to that point had I experienced a character just perma die in my team or in my party, like in a game. Not only that, but it was the it was the main love interest, and it really was like they really did a good job of creating an emotional connection between you as Cloud and and Aerith. Like they really they
0: it was a I mean she's perfect- the flower girl in the most just decrepit and rusty filthy world it was the perfect bait and switch it really was it was
2: it was it was just really really impactful it's a really impactful moment and um and we'll talk more about it next week when we get more into the experience personal experience stuff and more into the uh uh nuance of the story and and these different moments but um it really it they really did a great job with that and that was the whole idea is they just they wanted to make the characters more realistic Nomura was incredibly uh, precise and um, never, never didn't have notes. Essentially, yeah. from what I've heard, like he would spend just weeks on just like the curvature of an eye. Apparently, he was. Well, just- when
0: you look at like the graphics at this game, you know, so much of the story is told by these weird 3D chibi Popeye armed people. So yeah. like these, the the you know the the tiny tiny. Bits that they can spare for textures for those eyes are going to be really important. Yeah. So it's I kind of like that because so much of the game is spent reading text boxes and uh, and kind of watching these tiny little people go through their motions. Uh, it's actually kind of amazing how much of the game is spent uh, walking through these elaborate pre-rendered backgrounds, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, which. When you, when I think about how much work went into just each individual screen,
2: hand drawn, like incredible, hand Hand-rend- hand rendered, yeah. yeah, I don't just very detailed is what I mean. When
0: previously, you know, if you were building a dungeon in a Final Fantasy game on Nintendo, you just slapped down a floor tile set and called it a day. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and the other thing though that kept me going,
2: kind of, and moving into that part of what made this so cinematic, uh, besides like the character design and all that good stuff and the story elements. But just uh, going back to the tech, um, you've got Katsu Yuki Hashimoto is the general supervisor for the 3D animation sequences. He was leading the team. He's the one who put together the team of people that would sort of work on all the uh, 3D graphics. But what they figured out how to do was, and this is what blew people away in tech showcases when they were like first showing stuff off at like E3 and things like that, um, was when when something when some real time graphics would meld into an FMV cutscene or happen Mm -hmm. over an FMV cutscene and so that you couldn't Tell you, you actually. It was a smooth transition from real time rendered graphics into, and by FMV I mean full motion video, a a pre a, a pre rendered full motion video scene, um, and that's kind of like like a good example is the when cloud when the pre rendered model of cloud jumps onto an FMV rendered moving train. It it's looks so it, like at the time like now it might look even kind of janky, but at the time that was like. Mesmerizing Like just to see Like an opening film Opening CGI sequence Turn into game Without a load screen Or some kind of jump cut Was, was completely Just new and, and and everyone was just Completely blown away by that And a lot of that Is what kept me going I feel like originally The first time I played Through the game I had no idea How to play an RPG I ran from all of my fights I, I was completely under leveled By the end of the game You didn't know how to Stack
0: your materia to create the ultimate double counter I didn't
2: get... Mime I, build. Didn't, I didn't understand any of that shit. Uh, you know, I, I really was a poor player, and I couldn't beat Sephiroth at the end. I actually had to restart the game from the beginning and play it the right way before I could actually beat the game. I actually made the game way harder for myself um, because every fight was, like, the biggest, most challenging fight ever because, like, I wasn't leveled up enough for any of the fucking boss fights. Anyways, though... But you kept working because those CGI... Yes, that's what i is getting set at set pieces, yeah.
0: Uh, the the again, I can't I can't
2: stress this enough. I just wanted to see the next video, like I just wanted to see the next like cutscene.
0: The raw in in terms of in terms of uh, content, in terms of maturity of content, in terms of just novelty of the 3D graphics in terms of the actual emotional investment you have in the characters each cutscene was just like the carrot at the or at the carrot at the end of a stick that just kept you playing so they had an a
2: CGI animation studio named visual works create uh, all of those FMV cutscenes Um, It was founded as a subsidiary CGI production company, Foursquare, for their first project. Some of that staff that they were using, they worked on, I don't know, movies like Star Wars, Jurassic Park, True Lies, like (laughs) giant, giant movies.
0: And And then they went on to such giant movies as Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, So, um, you know...
2: that was such such a huge part of what made this so cinematic, so new, so so just the next step, the next level. Um, but on top of that, we've got um, p- possibly the greatest composer of all video games, Nobuo Uematsu, uh, work on the music. That's
0: a weird way to pronounce Koji Kondo, you PlayStation-loving traitor. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, so... Uh, Let's talk about Uematsu. Uh, as a child, he wanted to be a professional wrestler. He was ref- he's referred to as the Beethoven of video games music. He was a self-taught musician. He began playing piano at age 12. His biggest influence was Elton John uh, and, uh, he played in a bunch of different bands. Of course he did music for commercials and stuff because all those guys start out doing music for advertising. Um, but then he joined square in 1986, uh, and he considered it a side job. And honestly, everybody at that time considered (laughs) it a side job, considered it a hobby when they were working for square in 1986. Um, he, he was working at a music rental shop at the time. His first, uh, I, I love the name of. Of this game Which is the only reason Why I mention it His first game He composed for Was called Cruise Chaser Blasty With two S's I don't know What that game is (laughs) Cruise Chaser Blasty But um He meets Sakaguchi And they work on Final Fantasy As their first game Uh And um And when When this came out So he was like Oh shit We're moving over To CD-ROM This is awesome um. Oh God! It's like a big mech game, cruise chaser, Blasty. Awesome! It's like a big mecha game. So uh, but not
0: like a funny mecha game. <laughs> the name Blasty is supposed to be very intimidating.
2: <laughs> so, uh, he he gets really excited when it comes to making Final Fantasy VII. Of course, he'd worked on the Final Fantasies before that. Um, but this one's going to be on CD-ROM, and his first thought was, I can have real music with actual vocals, not using just like the sound chip on mm-hmm. the console, but like really put in full songs, um, but he found that when he started doing that, uh, uh, th- the load times took way longer, it just chunked up the game really bad, yeah. and he w- he quickly decided he had to kind of go back on that and um, work uh, using the PlayStation's uh, sound channels but the thing is is he had 24 sound channels to work with on the PlayStation as opposed to SNES's 8 so it was still using the console's internal sound sequencer as, as it is called um, it was still a, a big big step up for him and he was able to, to write songs with a lot more detail and uh, nuance to them
0: I mean there was one track where he did go all out
2: Yes, there's one track where he did go all out, and that, of course, is One Winged Angel. That's the big, famous track. We'll play it in just a second. I just want to lean into it, though, really quickly. It was inspired by Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, as well as uh, 60s and 70s Rock and Roll. He spent two weeks now. He wanted to do something different with the track, is essentially what it was. He wanted to challenge himself. So he spent two weeks just sort of writing out different... Musical phrases, just different musical phrases that he liked. He just wrote a bunch of completely separate phrases for music and then he sort of just put them all together. Um, he said, "This was the only time I ever used that approach. It was almost like a gamble. It could have turned out great, or it could have turned out horribly. Well, I think it turned out f- fucking fantastically. One Winged Angel is the final boss fight song. It has so much impact. It was, it was, um, it was actually it, I, I have it written here that it's the first game that has vocals in a song. Um, it
0: feels like it can't be right. Feels like
2: it can't be right. But it was the first game for that I ever heard that had vocals in a song. Maybe that's what that note is for myself. It was. It blew me away. You're." You, how do we make a boss fight more impactful th- to make it the final boss fight? Let's have like a fucking chorus of people <laughs> singing behind it, which was in video games, for me at least at the time, was completely unheard of. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's one of the first games to have some vocals within it. So uh, Megan, can you, can you play that One Winged Angel for us? It's so good. Honestly. Like, this is perfect for a final boss fight.
0: (laughs) This is so good. Not just any boss fight, but, like, the... The way they build up Sephiroth in this game is, like...
2: uh, It's so good. It's it's a
0: lesson in how to make your bad guy seem, like, larger than life.
2: When I first played this game, every time I would, like, encounter Sephiroth, it would be, like, oh, shit. Like, it would be, like, I'd be, like, scared. I was, like, afraid to actually confront
0: the fucking guy. It was nuts. Well, they do a uh, flashback sequence uh, in in a long game like this. It's, like, kind of... I get it's technically early in the game, but it's Cloud... Uh, remembering the time that he played, that he uh, was on a mission alongside Sephiroth, and the whole time, your character Cloud is like so weak yeah he's barely doing damage he is like you know just so ineffectual and then Sephiroth is in your party and just laying waste to all these monsters and
2: what's amazing is you can go into the menu and like look at his materia (laughs) and be like holy fuck he has like the most crazy ass shit like you could see his whole build and the fact that it was a flashback so you're like oh my god he's like way more powerful now what is materia by the way oh god the magic system materia is essentially it's actually you'll find it to be pretty simple uh uh Jake said he's going to play this game On his phone this week So I'm excited To hear your feedback After uh, My
0: it. thumbs hurt And my <laughs> eyes are Very squinty <laughs> Or
2: you can always Just watch the Lexi Loves Game Night Playthrough if you want We have a full pl- uh, The full playthrough On YouTube so How I mean, many those, hours is that? Oh uh, 60 something
0: yeah, it's not it's not Not, bad not horrible,
2: not, not too crazy. Oh, it's pretty short, and I feel like it's a 70-hour game, and we, we really uh, cut it down because I think I was there to essentially be like, go here now, and <laughs> here's what you should
0: equip. And, and you didn't even pick up y- Yuffie. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> no, uh, we did, actually, but ah, whatever. Good for you. Uh, there's a couple of optional characters, main characters in the game, and again, I think that stuff we'll get more to next week. He also, though, all right, I'm going to say about the music, um, there's like – too many really great, memorable for me at least, uh, background tracks in Final Fantasy VII to even like play here. I love
0: so much of the music. Like uh, Megan, if you can bring up on YouTube uh, Final Fantasy VII Surfer Chocobo music. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, I love that song. Um, he
2: he, just uh, he knocked it out of the park with this entry. There's so many different. Like I'll hear the music and I just. I just, it just takes me back immediately to that time. Um, and for a game that, again, I probably put in all told about 500 hours between the amount of times I've replayed it, the amount of times I've hung out with other people while they played it.
0: All right. I'm going to ride this chicken and get some materia. Wait, what do you, what's, if you get, do you remember the whole like, The whole sub thing with the chocobo races, like you get the golden one. Oh, yeah, you
2: got to get the gold chocobo. And what happens when you get the gold? We'll talk about that, then you can go get Knights of the Round. The uh, best, uh, su- the best summon ever, forever. Okay. Every member of the Knights of the Round hits your fucking enemy for like <laughs> thirteen thousand HP. It's fucking rad as <laughs> a motherfucker. Um. So, uh. Also, uh. One more song I wanted us to play, and that would be during the Aerith death scene. Um. He wanted a song. It was. It was. It's sad but beautiful. Um. It's a more understated song, and I think it just works so well. As opposed to, again, I mentioned it earlier. As opposed to playing music that's, um that's like, oh, this is the part where you're supposed to cry, and this is the part where you're supposed to feel really strong emotions. Instead, it's this really understated, beautiful, just pretty ballad. So let's let's hear that.
0: And it's playing during what should be a shocking moment of violence. Yes. Well, actually, this is – he's
2: – Cloud is holding uh, uh, her and and um, kind of giving her like a water burial.
0: Oh, like putting her on a boat and setting it on fire, like a Viking.
2: Yeah.
0: Radical. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. He puts her on a boat. No, actually, he just kind of drops her in the water, and it's very sad.
0: Um, the uh, oh, so it should be noted that we're talking about all this revolutionary tech, all of these developers working on you know this this revolutionary uh thematically and visually story with revolutionary tech with a revolutionary soundtrack with a revolutionary budget and all of this incredible like once in a lifetime energy happened within any within a year yeah like 1994 is when they started talking about it but from like the actual decision to go with playstation and start making the game Was just a year.
2: And uh, it's announced on February 1996. There's a playable demo at the 1996 Tokyo Game Show. It's released on January 31st, 1997. I believe I got it with my PlayStation as a Christmas gift that December of 1997. I'm pretty sure. Um, and I'm so uh, uh, shout outs to the dude at the electronics gaming boutique that fucking when my mom went into the store asked what she should get her son with the PlayStation <laughs> and he said definitely Final Fantasy 7 Thank you it's for not saying Crash Bandicoot. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I love Crash Bandicoot. I really enjoy that game. But getting Final Fantasy 7 for Christmas with the PlayStation, I and sure
0: hope there isn't any swearing and big titted <laughs> brawlers in this game <laughs> for my precious boy.
2: Oh my god! Best Christmas break. Ever, I was up till two in the morning every night, fucking playing that game obsessively for like a week straight. It was so. Now you promise
0: great. me there's no androgynous man in this game who seduce and control other men, correct? <laughs> um, there's definitely not. Why a does scene my this mom game. talk like that? Wait, what is it? <laughs> my boy holding is a very special boy. Why is I my mom wanna a farmer? I want to make sure. <laughs> <laughs> that there isn't a scene in which the main character is shoved in a bathtub with gay <laughs> prostitutes.
2: <laughs> oh, my God. And we can get into, I think,
0: some of the controversy. I don't know. I feel like we're getting to a good place to stop right around I the just, release. Uh, I just want to play the uh, commercial. This is this is how Final Fantasy VII was sold in America. Yeah. A, a, a place that was not buying PlayStations and... Did not buy JRPGs, and it's some, and like because of this marketing campaign, it broke through the noise and actually, like, the game itself sold 10 million worldwide.
1: An evil empire is
0: sucking the life force for the planet. Giant cannons, explosions, war machines, motorcycles, cool spiky haired blonde boys, Nixie twos. You it's survive. all clips from the CGI cutscenes. Yes. Sails, this is when... Oh, there was a screaming mutant face inside yes. a laboratory. Fantasy <laughs> Dude,
2: no other game commercial had shit like that. Not at all. And, and I believe that's probably the first... Well, first of all, just it, it being on TV commercials in mm. general was a huge deal. I mean, the marketing people in the West, this was such a big... Deal for them. Um, that they, they 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 essentially like had to get this game over in America. Um, and their big thing was it just they needed it to sell a million. Um, so uh, I, I love this quote from Assistant Marketing Associate Kyoko Higo. So it came out on December seventh, ninety seven. 97, and then I remember the first week of December, I walked into the office one morning, and Iwasaki and uh, Maruyama wanted to gather everyone and announce that we had just hit the one million mark uh, unit mark, and that Andy House had just sent us a few bottles of champagne, I believe. Laughs, and uh, Iwasaki because he got the news before he left the house, or as he was coming into the office, he bought a few more. Bottles, And that day was like the happiest day at the office. After working so hard, long hours, a couple of overnights even. Not just a couple, but many overnighters. For even someone like myself who was on the marketing side, that was, I think, our proudest and happiest day that came right before the holidays. And so, yeah, they hit... They hit uh, a million pretty quick and, uh, yeah, sold 2 million copies worldwide, or or 10 million copies worldwide, and um, it really was the game that that sold the Sony PlayStation that that essentially led to, um, shit, I mean, the success of... The PlayStation fucking franchise Essentially yep. I mean like probably wouldn't have placed. we would probably we might not have PlayStation 4 today if it wasn't for Final Fantasy 7 success
0: entirely Possible
2: um, so I guess That's a good part to, to stop off at I think there's some more little ins and outs we could Talk about with the development that we'll try to pull Out of our notes that we didn't get to today But mostly talk about um, Really cover more of the story Next next week also more of the Personal experience I mean next week you
0: Come to the Wizard and the Bruiser to learn and you come to Circle Jerk. <laughs> and God damn it, we will make sure you get that jerk. <laughs> yeah, there will be... Put it on a t-shirt. There's going to be so much...
2: The, we'll call uh, episode two of this The Jerkening. <laughs> and uh, we will just sit and gush about Final Fantasy VII. We'll, I,
0: we'll jerk and gush how much you as much as you want. I mean, and then to have like Lexi Loves Game Night and... Jerken and gushing with Wizard and the Brewster, <laughs> Available only for $19.95 a month.
2: <laughs> um... Yeah, I think there's there's a lot more to talk about, definitely, for me. This is a game that sits very close to my heart. Um, and even today, I mean, even recently, I sat down with my girlfriend and uh, live on Twitch, uh, played through the entire thing again last year, which pretty much led to me streaming regularly on Twitch. So this game has had, like, an impact on me in so many different ways. It's why I love JRPGs to this day. It's why I put 116 hours into Persona 5. Um, it, it showed me menu-based fighting and uh, how, how it, that could actually be a cool way to play a game. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. It's, it has, and we'll talk about that more. So next tune in week. next
0: week when we talk about how the motorcycle chase sequence was bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I would love
2: to also talk about the <laughs> shitty stuff. that super doesn't hold up. Like, I don't know, <laughs> snowboarding and stuff. Uh, we'll definitely get to that as well because there's getting to play it again. So recently was a lot of fun to be able to, you know, Oh, and I don't know, maybe like the whole racist Barrett stuff, but we'll get into what?
0: that. I swear the one weird white nerd they got to translate the entire game down Definitely understood the urban slang of African
2: Americans. <laughs> yeah. Oh completely. my god. Oh my god. So we'll get into that stuff as well. Anything that you're upset that we didn't cover this week, don't worry. We will absolutely, without a doubt, definitely, no bones about it, cover it next week. Especially if you scream at us about it on our Facebook page. <laughs> Come to the Wizard Brewster Facebook page. Tell us
0: what we missed. That's actually a very helpful resource. It need. is good. We Just missed Be nice about
2: it. I didn't know that. Um the the Mad Piero episode of Cowboy Bebop. It was uh, the music was Pink Floyd. Apparently. That's what someone on Twitter told me today. That's very cool. If that's true, that's really cool.
0: How do people correct you on Twitter again?
2: Um, at... Holdenators, I believe. I don't even know my own Twitter tag, but I do know my Twitch tag, Holdenators Ho, and you can catch me on that uh, all the time with great special guests. Um, this is going to be in the future of that, but um, I've got Kevin Barnett coming on, or he, Kevin Barnett was on last week. Um, Ed Ed Larson doing Brighter Side Live. If you like the the podcast Brighter Side, we've got Jackie doing Japanese Jack dating sims. Kellen and I are playing Dark Souls. I got lots of fun guests, and then there's also just days where it's just me, and you got to deal with it, Jake.
0: Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young. I also help out on the Drawfee channel, uh, which is on YouTube and where the illustrators for college humor hang out and uh, make dumb drawings based on your suggestions. And uh, go to dorkley.com and occasionally like the stuff we do there as well. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. For more shows like the one you just listened to,
1: go to cavecomedyradio.com.